None of this is funny. Well, I was mm. hoping it was probably lots of pressure. <laughs> you got to, the conversation has to naturally start to happen, Jeremy. You can't just come out with jokes here. It. He's got to buy somebody dinner first. Perfect. That was exactly what I needed. <laughs> That's what you, you forced the, the hand, didn't you? I forced the hand right there. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and true story, I once attempted to teach my daughter the days of the week by playing her Sherelle and Alexander O'Neill's Saturday Love. Did it work? Uh, I mean, kind of. <laughs> they say it pretty fast. Yeah, <laughs> it may not be ideal, but I thought it was clever at the time. All right. Well, I too am, well, I'm co-host Jeremy. Let me start there. And I've been thinking of the kids too. I I think there's too many letters in the alphabet, guys. 26 is too many. Yeah, we're going to 25. We're going to eliminate the letter I and replace it with Ys. <laughs> we don't need both of them. You're right. In fact, I, I think our artist today would agree with you. Oh, yeah. He's funded my, my dreams. Very cool. Well, this sounds like a very progressive but necessary movement that you're behind. Yeah. I am co-host Peter Cook, and I thought I would use the platform that we have here at I'd Buy That for a dollar to just rectify, correct, or maybe just apologize for a little faux pas that I once was responsible for. Oh, what'd you do, Peter? Interesting. Yeah, so I was uh, on a tour across the USA several years ago, and I was on a train, taking a train tour, and I had visited Memphis, Tennessee to see, you know, Sun Records and Graceland, and I was boarding the train one morning to go to New Orleans to see Fats Domino's house, and a woman came up to me, and I thought she was asking me for matches, like if she needed a light. So I held out my Zippo, lit the flame, and she said, oh, I'm sorry, thanks anyway. And I was very confused. I had exactly what she's asking for. Fire, matches. Well, now after studying the artist that we're featuring today, who is from Natchez, I'm realizing that she was asking if it was the train to Natchez. And so if she's out there listening, I just want to apologize for that awkward moment. Wow. <laughs> wow. And when are you going to apologize for that awkward story? If, right now, I'm very sorry for putting you all through that. <laughs> the punchline. I was waiting. But for any fans of Jim Jarmusch and Mystery Train, that's for you. And with us today, coming all the way. <laughs> From Bournemouth, UK, is a DJ, podcaster. He's been on before. You may know him as Studio Funk. Because that is what he hosts, the Studio Funk podcast, where he plays funk and soul from the past as well as the modern day. Welcome back, Aswad. Ah, thank you very much. It feels good to be back. I think like our last session that we recorded together was considered to be a classic, I think now regarding Heatwave. It doesn't feel that long ago, actually. I can still remember it quite well. Over a year ago now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so time's gone by quite fast, but it's still fresh in my memory. On today's show, I'm really excited to talk about this special album we've got featured coming from 1985 on Taboo Records by the one and only Alexandra O'Neill. Yes. Excited for this one. We've talked a little bit. We've mentioned Alexander O'Neill a time or two on the podcast, but not enough. And I don't think enough people are aware of this man and his magic. This is his debut album, correct? Yeah, 
yeah, this is his debut album. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this album today as well with you all is because there's so much surrounding this artist and the people who contributed toward this album as well. And I think it's quite a special one for like the mid 80s. And one of the albums as well that really stood the test of time and really holds up really well. I'm going to be nerding out later on talking about how good this album is sonically and how well it was mixed and mastered. But um, yeah, plenty to get into. Yeah, there is. Well, before we go any further, what song do we want to start with? I think we have to start from the very top, from the very first track called A Broken Heart Can Mend. And this is a wonderful start to the album. I think straight away if you've not heard this album before and you immediately hear the first few seconds of this you immediately know what time you're in for true it sets the tone nicely well let's do it a broken heart can mend side a track one Yeah, that is a smooth track, and I'm going to recommend right now for our listeners, if you have not seen the album cover, pull it up, Google it right now, Alexander O'Neill, self-titled 1985. He is standing in front of a diner, old-fashioned diner, and he's in this flashy suit, and I, I want to create propose that we create a new genre tag for this specific style banker wave banker wave (laughs) (laughs) he looks like this most stylish banker big business big bucks (laughs) he is uh definitely looking like a high roller for sure on this one (laughs) debonair yes he's ordering everything off the menu at that diner (laughs) yeah 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 But yeah, not to immediately digress from the sounds, how about that track? That track immediately cued me into what Eswag kind of hinted at at the beginning. The production on this is fantastic. The arrangements, just the way everything meshes together is really flawless. That was definitely what stood out to me on my first listen. Yeah, and once you find out who's behind it which why why tease it any longer it's jimmy jam and terry lewis 
who are the production team behind about a little over half this record. And that track is one of them. They wrote it too. They, they wrote and produced played. They're pulling a lot of the weight here. I mean, of course, then there's the voice, the unmistakable voice of Alexander O'Neill. And who are Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis for those that don't know, or are you saving that for later? <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, there, there's there's plenty we can go into, but I, I think they're they're best known for working with Janet Jackson pretty much right after this, correct? Like when they start working with Janet. Jackson. Yeah, that, that record came out '86, so yeah, pretty close. Yeah, yeah, and I would say as well that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis also quite known for working with SOS Band. Yeah. Previously, and also available on Taboo Records. But um, a lot of history goes quite deep with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis because they come from Minneapolis, which is also quite known for a lot of funk and soul and birthed a lot of great musician, musicians and talented artists such as Prince and um, quite a lot of other collectives as well. There's a lot of fun stories, really, and we'll get into it as we get along because there's some interesting bits around Prince and Alexandra O'Neill and how once they were quite close to working together and such and the, how Alexandra O'Neill managed, was able to get in contact in the end with Taboo Records and have the opportunity to create this album. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that shortly here. I would like to just go around and ask what everyone's background is with Alexander O'Neill. I will just start by saying that I don't recall having really heard of him prior to Sean recommending him. I believe it was on our level 42 episode a while back that you had recommended. Is it the hearsay album that you recommended, Sean? Yes. Hearsay from 87 which yeah that one's been on my list of potential records to cover for a while uh dj with it all the time it's a great album yeah so what is your background how did you find alexander o'neill i got turned on to alexander o'neill at some point working in the record store i think the first time was a friend came in who was digging through the bargain bin and started uh jokingly telling me that, you know, I just didn't know how to do my job because I'd undervalued these Alexander O'Neill records and they didn't belong in the bargain bin because he's a genius. <laughs> and I later, you know, put the record on to see if my friend was telling the truth or not. And turns out it wasn't just hearsay. Oh, Ooh. you were ready to do that <laughs> album, weren't you? <laughs> I was. It's a great record. I actually wasn't as familiar with this album, so it's been fun to kind of dig into his first record here, and it's it's still great. They're they're both excellent. Alexander O'Neill is definitely a major talent that deserves just a little bit more recognition, which is why we're here. For sure, Jeremy. Yeah, I have nothing to add. I, <laughs> the same as you, Peter. Yeah. I heard him mention on the podcast, but hadn't even looked into him. So Yeah, well, and so that takes us to Aswad. And I, I think one of the reasons, I'll, I'll just say up front, is he would become, Alexander O'Neill hit much bigger in the UK than he did in the States. Because this album is... I think Aswad said it's just everywhere for cheap in the UK. Mm -hmm. wasn't as easy to find a copy, like even on Discogs, I think I paid like seven for this one. And it was a copy that a collector on Discogs had acquired at an in-store appearance of Alexander O'Neill in Minneapolis oh, wow. in 1985. So this is going back. It's really cool that we got one from Minneapolis where he's, his music career begins. That is pretty awesome. Yeah. As well, what's your background? Yeah, sure. So I first come across this album quite a few years ago and I think it was mainly from hearing a song or two within a mix like DJ made a mix and immediately I was like drawn to it because it just stood out and then managed able to pick up the album and when I actually brought the album on the records I actually purchased it for like two pounds at the time so really cheap and like you said there are so many copies of this album in the UK and I think mainly is because he had such a large fan base in the UK. And I think once Taboo Records realized that 
he was doing quite well with this album because we can get into some of the singles later and how much they dem- they debuted quite high on the UK charts. Um, the record label decided to basically press more records for the UK and for Europe due to the popularity. I think it was mainly because Alexander O'Neill, he has such a soulful voice and he has quite a romantic side as well with his music, which I think fits well for the UK audience. So we're thinking about around this time, around the mid 80s as well. A lot of popular acts in the UK, we're thinking about, let's say, Loose Ends, we're thinking also about um, some other popular artists around that time that has a similar sound, like, for example, Sade as well, who had a great album in that same year and had these singles like The Sweetest Taboo as well. So when you think about music along that similar notes and similar sounds, you can imagine Alexandra O'Neill's music fitting right in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, it goes in with the longstanding UK tradition of often appreciating US soul artists more than they get appreciated here in America. And so I was wondering, is Hearsay just as easily available in the UK as this self-titled record? Do you see that one as much or less? Yeah, you see it everywhere. Cool. <laughs> what about the what about the Christmas record from 88? I love that one too. <laughs> I have to admit, the Christmas record, I've seen it a couple of times, but it's not as often you can find it, but um, that might be the rare record <laughs> of O'Neill. <laughs> it's worth it, though. Not just for the Christmas fans. It's a dope record. <laughs> oh, even the cover. It's worth it for the cover alone, just for the sleeve. True. Yeah, well, we'll get into some more songs shortly. Some of the bigger hits, better known songs from this. That is worth mentioning that A Broken Heart Can Mend, the first song we listened to, was the third single from this album. And it didn't chart very high in the U.S. or the U.K. But yeah, let's uh, just talk a little bit of background of Alexander O'Neill before we get into the next song. So as previously alluded to, Alexander O'Neill was born in Natchez, Mississippi on November 15th, 1953, making him exactly one year younger than Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> Great fact. <laughs> I. Mainly just had to throw that in because that other time Sean was talking about Emmett Rhodes and mentioned him having the same birthday as Ric Flair. And I had no idea who Ric Flair was, (laughs) but I do know a few wrestlers. He's been doing his research (laughs) since then. He's discovered the macho man, Randy Savage. Yeah. (laughs) It's a new obsession for Peter. Still pretty new to me. So Alexander and his five siblings were raised by his mother, Dora. He never knew his father because his father had died in an accident shortly before he was born. He played football. He was an all-star linebacker in high school. So yet another musician who perhaps could have gone the route of athlete that we've had a few of those. We're we're assembling the team one episode at a time here. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah, that would be good. And we have Johnny Mathis and Chris Christopherson and Alexander O'Neill in our squad here. <laughs> he started singing as a teenager with local bands. He was like 14 and just found that he had this natural talent for singing. And he loved it, but he didn't ever think it would become a career. After high school, he spent a year in college on a football scholarship, but dropped out and ended up working at a factory in Chicago and it was there that he discovered the rigors of blue-collar work and decided that was not for him. He relocated to Minneapolis in 1974 at the age of 20 with the intention of becoming a singer. He gave himself 10 years to land a record contract, and if he failed, he would become a truck driver. That was his 10-year plan. It's kind of reasonable, actually, though. Age 20? I don't think of Minneapolis as like where I'm going to go to get big, though. <laughs> there must have been some kind of draw there. Yeah, well, and it, you know, eventually it would prove to be fruitful ground for him to be in. But yeah, in 1974, I'm not exactly sure offhand what was there. He began performing in various local bands over the over the next several years. And eventually he made an impression on an up-and-coming duo of musicians, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis who asked him to join their group Flight Time, which spelled F-L-Y-T-E-T 
T-Y-M-E, which is going back to Jeremy's mm-hmm. whole movement with the alphabet. Yeah, and he had like two or three other bands. <laughs> there, there, there were, had I known that you were going to lean so heavily into that Y yeah. thing, replacing the I, I would have written those down. But yeah, it, it was a recurring thing. Yeah. I was like, wait, were those all the same band or like morphing? But it didn't seem that they were. Uh, he actually, in flight time, he replaced lead vocalist Cynthia Johnson, who had just left the group for another Minneapolis group, the Lips Incorporated, later known for their big hit, Funky Town. Uh-huh. And so right about the time that Alexander O'Neill joined flight time, the biggest name on the Minneapolis scene came knocking, and that would be... Prince. Prince. It seems that Prince was interested in molding and shaping the band into an act for the Warner Brothers label. He had a clause in his contract that allowed him to do such for the label. And he, he changed their name to simply The Time. And mm-hmm. in the initial meetings, Alexander began questioning some of Prince's decisions and like, you know, asking questions about how money was going to work. You know, he wanted that paper. I think that was the exact words that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis used. That is the exact quote. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And questioning Prince promptly got him axed. He was fired and replaced with longtime Prince associate Morris Day. And they became Morris Day in the time. We all know them if we've seen Purple Rain or existed for a few moments in the 80s. (laughs) They were, you know, Morris Day in the time are definitely the most successful act that Prince was ever involved with outside of, you know, his the revolution, his own <laughs> group. So instead, well, that gave Alexander gumption to prove himself. And he put out a couple of 12 inch singles with small labels under just the name Alexander over the next few years in the early eighties. But then he signed with Clarence Avant's taboo records. Now uh, Clarence Avant is a longtime music business veteran. He had, the Sussex Records label in the 70s. He actually, some might remember him from the documentary Searching for Sugar Man about the musician Sixto Rodriguez. Uh, Clarence actually gets a little agitated when asked about royalties that had not been paid to Rodriguez in a scene there. That's rather well known, but Clarence, big time as far as, I mean, he signed a lot of, of major acts. And so, this is great for Alexander to be on his the Taboo Records label. And for his debut album, this one that we're listening to today, he reunited with his former flight time bandmates, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, but who by this time had been fired by Prince as well. <laughs> and they wrote and produced the majority of the album, just a little over half. And the other half was written and produced by former time keyboardist Monty Moyer. And he actually wrote, Monty Moyer wrote and produced the next song that we were going to feature, If You Were Here Tonight. So how about we take a little break from the bio and listen to that one. How's that sound to you guys? Sounds great. Let's do that. Yeah. We're talking a little side A, track two. on new 
Yeah, so that was the track called If You Were Here Tonight. And that song was very successful in the UK. Actually reached number 13 in the singles chart of 1985. Now, what's quite interesting about this track, and it's one of those things where like, it doesn't stand out to you, but when you listen to it quite carefully, you will notice that traditionally, when it comes to songwriting, it tends to like have some form of like rhyme to it. So, you, you know, the words are rhyming and such, but there's no words rhyming in this song. So it's, it actually shows how talented Alexander O'Neill is with his soulful voice and the way he's singing the notes will make you feel like it is rhyming together as a set piece of songwriting. But the fact he's just singing some lyrics which obviously just flowing really well across that production there. And um, it's just it's just fantastic. Every time I listen to it, I feel like I discover something a bit different from that song because it also has, once again, that sense of like a dream feel. It has like a late night loneliness. Um, yes, yeah, a really well put together track. Yeah, and he's got such a, a rich voice too. It's smooth and gritty, and he's able to convey so many layers of emotion through his delivery. It's yeah, like you said, you, you can listen to it and just appreciate it. But the more you listen to it, the more you start to pick up nuance and detail, and it really just it stands out more and more. The more time you give it. Yeah, and the song's instrumental section has been sampled and interpolated like uses the basis for so many different things. It was used for the popular dance hall beat sail away rhythm, which in the late nineties, a 12 track compilation album of various artists utilizing the beat based around the instrumental of this song was released. It features big dance hall artists like Beanie Man, Sean Paul, Richie Stevens, and Mr. Vegas, which is a weird listen because it's, (laughs) 12 tracks of very similar sounds, like the same rhythm used over and over with a different song <laughs> over the top of it. Hmm. It's bizarre. It's it's available on Spotify. And it was also sampled by Freddie Gibbs in his 2013 track, The Color Purple. And it was interpolated, meaning reimagined, replayed, but, you know, like the basis of it was, was in Rihanna's 2016 Grammy nominated hit Work featuring Drake. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of English and Jamaican singers have covered the song as well, including Wayne Wonder and Shane Ward. So it is mm. a huge song. Like has a huge impact for many different reasons. Yeah. It's it's just a very well written track that like you said, it could be adapted in so many different ways. I also just want to like share some interesting facts as well. When we we're talking earlier about Prince and how Alexander O'Neill was had the possibility of like working with him, and in the end they obviously they separated different ways. What's quite interesting is that later on, it was actually in 1985, Prince did work with Sheena Easton, and she had a track called Sugar Walls. Now. Prince is quite known for having quite a lot of aliases. And at that time, he had an alias called Alexandra Nevermind. And (laughs) if you check out the Sheena Easton track, Sugar Wolves, and check the credits, it says written by Alexandra Nevermind. So it was like a slight note or diss (laughs) or mention towards Alexandra O'Neill around that time. And the funny thing is, it came out in 1985 as well. So Prince was obviously known that Alexander O'Neill was releasing his music at this time and then slightly had a slight nod towards Alexander O'Neill around that time. Yeah, Prince was a weird cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Using like a diss pen name. Yeah. I have to say Sugar Wars is worth a listen as well. If you like if you yeah, if you're quite into Prince, you want to hear something, yeah, you should, you should check it out. It's worth a listen. Yeah, the more I read into this story and all the things, artists and albums that Alexander O'Neill was adjacent to in one way or another, yeah, there's it gets dense. There's a lot of rabbit holes that you can go down 
with the whole Minneapolis scene. Mm -hmm. I do recommend people check out the video for that song. It's available on YouTube. It's one of the only ones from this album where it doesn't feature women flocking around Alexander O'Neill. Instead, he is isolated alone, which, you know, fits the track's vibe and the lyrics very much. Uh, Sean, why don't you give a little, I think you in the group chat prior to the episode gave a good description of the video. Yeah. The, the video is hilarious. It, like I said, his, his voice does this great job of having these complex emotions, but his acting abilities don't quite <laughs> convey it as smoothly. <laughs> the video is funny because he just looks like he's trying desperately to be like very sexy, but also sad and lonely, but also really mad, but also still really sexy. <laughs> it's just like hilarious <laughs> watching him try to balance all this over the course of the four minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think he was more comfortable with, uh, just having the videos in the other videos where women are gathering around him and giving him a lot of attention. That was more his natural state. <laughs> yeah. Also early music videos are just generally a lot more awkward. People didn't really know what to do with them yet. Yeah. Yeah. The, the art form had not quite been mastered or at least mastered by very few at this point. <laughs> yeah, this is like the same year as aha take on me i think mm, yeah i think it is things are just starting to go next level at that point <laughs> well i propose that rather than going any more into alexander o'neill's story we just get to another track another single from this album and that would be innocent yeah which is a this is a jam right here great song yeah this is this is a good party jam and definitely for me, it represents a lot of that Minneapolis sound. And when I talk about when we say Minneapolis sound, it's a particular kind of um, trademark that they had within like their signature sound within the eighties, a lot of synthesizers, very funky. Um, when you listen to this, if you're familiar with like music of Prince and such, you might notice as well, this actually sounds like a Prince record, but that's just like obviously the incredible talents of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. For sure. Well, let's do it. And this features the vocals of Sherelle as well, which we'll talk about more when we come back. Innocent, side B, track one.
I love this record because you could say that every track on it is pretty smooth. Even the like funkier tracks like this, like there's a consistent kind of smoothness, that sophisticated R and B sound that, like we said, appealed to the UK audiences in the mid eighties, but every track is still so deeply funky. Even the smoothest songs on here, there's so many like rhythmic nuances going on and it's just like, you can't help but move listening to it. And that song in particular is just a real banger. Yeah, you could uh, pose a challenge to our listeners. You know, if you can listen to that song without moving, if you can just sit still completely for the whole duration, and it's and it's a long track on the album. It's like a medley. <laughs> if you if you can, you know, show us a video and tag us on Instagram at and I'd buy that podcast of yourself not moving to that song. The sit still challenge. Yeah, the sit still challenge to innocent and then you'll be guilty <laughs> i don't know <laughs> so yeah that featured the vocals of sherelle she is a los angeles born singer who spent summers in detroit growing up and that is where she connected with bassist and singer michael henderson previously featured on the podcast and she, at this time, he, he, Michael Henderson kind of helped her find her way into the music industry. And at this time, she was also signed to Taboo Records and was being produced by Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And she and Alexander O'Neill would go on to be pretty much linked together in, in many ways in their careers. That, you know, I would say his best known song today is the duet that we mentioned, Sean mentioned at the top, Saturday Love, Sherelle and Alexander O'Neill. That's probably how he's best remembered today, at least in the States. I don't know in the UK if that's a big song, Aswad. Yeah, it's a huge song, huge song. Now, when you talk about songs that are so influential that to a point that everybody wants to cover it <laughs> and it's available every place that does karaoke um this is the record this is the track saturday love that is yeah saturday love yeah with Sherelle. that duet it's it's such a good record and um it's it's just one of those things that definitely became the biggest record for Sherelle and asandra o'neill and i think that was released the year after this album was released if my memory serves me correct that sounds right yeah, it actually came out the same year as this. Saturday Love was released the, the same year as this album. So it was hot on the heels of Alexander O'Neill's debut album that he was on that duet with Sherelle. And then in 1987, Alexander O'Neill released the album Hearsay, his sophomore album that was his biggest hit in the United States. It, the song Fake was huge. And it also has the song Criticize, which is a pretty well-known one as well. He also released another duet with Sherelle on that Never Knew Love Like This. Now, unfortunately, around that time, his drug use started to become pretty severe. And I know in the uh, unsung episode that I watched that covers both Alexander O'Neill and Sherelle, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, it seems like time and time again, they had to make request that in order to work with Alexander O'Neill again he had to clean up his act it seems like this was recurring over and over again he would just go off the rails and in order to get his career back on track and work with the producers who were the right people for his sound he had to clean it up and eventually you know by the by the 90s they were done with that they they weren't willing to keep working with him. Mm. I think it always comes back down to the fact that with his success and, you know, if you even go back to the early story with him and Prince, he wanted to know how much money he was going to get because he was looking forward to this, the realization of having the cars and the, and the houses and such. And his success brought him a lot of money. And unfortunately, like most common routes has happened with artists within this era, especially drug addiction happens and such. And it's sad, really. And um, it means that his career 
became quite short in a way. And when that relationship finished with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, it almost came, I mean, it was the end for his legacy in that way. Yeah, and his relationship with Taboo Records ended about the same time as his relationship with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis in the early 90s. It seems that he's cleaned up. He has released a handful of albums over the years. His most recent was Hearsay 30 in 2017. I I didn't check that out. And I, it obviously was, would have been the 30th anniversary of Hearsay. So I don't, I, did, I don't know if it's an update of the album or what, <laughs> but. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it's the same or similar track. So it must be just like re-recorded versions. Interesting. I have to hear what his take was 30 years later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, I, di- I didn't get a chance to check that one out. But yeah, he still seems to be doing stuff. I know that in 2021, he released a song alongside some other artists called Say His Name that was dedicated to the memory of George Floyd. And he and Sherelle in 2019 appeared at the Soul Train Awards to pay tribute to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. So on some level, he's still out there. I don't think he's ever quite gotten his flowers, though. Mm, until I, now. I still think his... Yeah, we're, we're at least getting it started. <laughs> I, I mean, there's just a very singular artist. I don't think there's anything quite like this out there. If you, if you... Just spending a lot of time with this album the past couple weeks, it becomes its own kind of experience. <laughs> And I don't know if, he, if I haven't listened to his hearsay quite as much. I know the singles from it, Sean, but is that sort of the same thing with that album? Like, yeah, I would say so. Not anything quite like it. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you could make some comparisons to some of like the other bigger smooth R and B singers of the time. But uh, I mean, there was, yeah, like you said, there's something special to Alexander O'Neill for sure. I see you, Sean, trying to bend it back right before I ask you, Hey, Sean, Hey, Jeremy. Can you think of any similar artists <laughs> after Peter said that he's a one of a kind? <laughs> I have thought of a few similar artists. And actually, there's one in particular that jumped out to me first. There's two artists, though, that we've covered before. I'm wondering if either one of you guys can guess one of those two artists that I'm going to recommend. Michael Henderson? No, but that could have been on the list. All right, Jeremy, one guess. Someone who's been mentioned many times on the pod. Yeah, is it the You Are My Starship guy? No, that's another one that could be mentioned. Norman Connors. (laughs) Now, my first association when I was making my list of recommended albums was Kashif. Oh, Oh, yeah, duh. (laughs) Yeah. And Kashif as well. You know, he started earlier on doing a lot more up-tempo, boogie-funk kind of stuff. But the more he went on, he got into this really smooth... Um, often like jazz crossover kind of stuff. And if you listen to his record condition of the heart from 1985, that has some parallels to this. Mm. He's definitely not the same powerhouse singer that Alexander O'Neill is obviously, but yeah. um, stylistically great. And you can't go wrong with Kashif as we've said before. I think the major difference there is Kashif is kind of his own producer and per- player. And- yeah. Whereas Alexander O'Neill, it's all about that voice that can't be touched. And Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis providing what Kashif does for himself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which, if if you're going to go for someone other than Kashif to produce your record, like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, you can't do any better than that. <laughs> another record that we have talked about before, another 1985 album, and one that got mentioned earlier on in this episode, Loose Ends, A Little Spice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did mean to mention when Aswad brought them up, Loose Ends, previously covered on the podcast. Was was that the album we did? Yes. Yeah, So, and then a third 1985 record, one that we have mentioned before but not featured yet, Freddie Jackson's Rock Me Tonight. Yeah, you know, I'm not... Ah, good choice. I'm not really familiar with that one. He's best known for the the ballad You Are My Lady. Which I'm sure you heard, you know, uh, in the department store yeah. <laughs> overhead yeah. or working at Lowe's or whatever. <laughs> I know you are my lady for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Freddie Jackson, another great 
kind of like a soul ballad crooner with a lot of power in his voice. But that's a great record also from 1985. 85 was a good year. Very true. I mean, it was also the year that rock hit its peak as we learned on our heavy petting episode. Oh, <laughs> as established. It is canon. <laughs> well, fantastic, Sean. Thank you so much. Some things for both myself, co-host Jeremy, and our listeners to dig into further. Before we wrap things up here, Aswad, do you care to talk some more about things you have going on or where people can find you on the interwebs? Sure. So people know me mostly for Studio Funk, which is a podcast which is available everywhere. And it's a show which features a lot of artists from the past and modern day covering funk, soul, boogie, modern funk as well. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things going on in that show. Um, you can find me on studio.funk on Instagram. I'm also available on Twitter without the blue check mark, I'll say. <laughs> I'm not paying that eight pounds. Um, <laughs> but um yeah, so you can follow me on there and yeah, look forward. I've got some things lined up coming on later on this year. I'm planning up some big things. But yeah, stay tuned. Yeah, definitely recommend checking out Studio Funk. Speaking of singular experiences, it's kind of it's a whole own unique thing over there. It's great for like putting on I often do dishes and just decide time to hear the latest Studio Funk. <laughs> thank you thank you Aswad and thank you listeners for checking out yet another installment of I'd Buy That for a Dollar unless we have any final thoughts on Alexander O'Neill or anything connected to this I think we've at least given the man some proper respect here yeah we went and picked some I'd Buy That dandelions out of the front yard <laughs> 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 Some kind of flowers, at least, right? Yeah, we're not buying the expensive ones. <laughs> and uh, at the end of this year, check out our 2023 Christmas episode to listen to Alexander O'Neill's My Gift to You. I'll just commit to that being my selection <laughs> this year right now. <laughs> wow. Making your pick in, uh, in May. Yeah, you know, I like to get ahead of things. I actually want to find a copy now. <laughs> I want to get a copy. Well, we were going to get out of here on... You were meant to be my lady, not my girl. Aswad, is there any particular reason you wanted to go out on this one or feature this one? Yeah, this is the last track on the album. And something that we probably didn't mention earlier is that this album is, it's a seven track album. So in some respects, it's quite a short album. It's short and sweet. And this is an album that definitely is um, all killer, no filler. And the last track here is a perfect send-off for the album. And once again, it features the great Minneapolis sound. Oh, this is just, it's just, my, it's probably my favorite track on the album. It's like a perfect send-off. And one of the things I forgot to mention earlier, and I, I did want to talk a bit about it, was how well and produced this album is. And if you're going to be looking forward to getting a copy of this album, Without a doubt, if you can, try pick up an original pressing because even the mastering on the record produced is so good on this. And hopefully if you have to pick this up, you can hear how good this record is. But yeah, this is the perfect send-off and the perfect way to end the show. And um, yeah, this is the You Were Meant to Be My Lady, not my girl. I did want to point out on my copy, the 1985 copy acquired at an in-store appearance in minneapolis i'm sure this is on all copies but it above all the uh you know copyright credits 1985 taboo records cbs there's a little in quotations it says the earth has music for those who listen which i i didn't look into to see if that was you know sourced from anywhere or if it's just an alexander o'neill original thought but it, it really fits I, his whole demeanor in that I got from watching the unsung special is he seems actually like a very loving and even fun person. He, he's, mm. and, and, uh, I get the impression, you know, he's very 
tuned in with everything around him. And you get that feeling from his, the way he sings, his vocal stylings and everything. Very sensual human being. Yeah, very grounded. He is, mm. Yeah, he's very grounded from what I gathered. I, I don't think he was ever a big enough star to become ungrounded. You know, he, he came up with very little money, but he always had a lot of love, he said, in his household. And I, th- I think he's just, you know, despite through all his turmoil and ups and downs, I think he's always had that intact. So seems like a wonderful human being and a fantastic singer, performer, artist. Aswad, thank you so much for bringing him to the podcast. Uh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Well, I'm co-host Jeremy. I'm co-host Peter. I'm co-host Sean. And I'm Aswad, a.k.a. Studio Funk. And this is You Were Meant to Be My Lady, Not My Girl by Alexander O'Neill.